Vaccine eligibility opens up for another half million San Diegans. Four million doses right away, and they said they're going to ramp up to 20 million, I think, over the next several weeks. So it's only going to help supply. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego teachers react to school reopening plans. From the start of the pandemic, educators and the district's leadership have been on the same page. That safety and science must be the driving factors. An update on racial equity promises at San Diego Unified. And jazz soloist Rebecca Jade shares her playlist. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. A whole new sector of people eligible for COVID vaccinations opens up in San Diego this Saturday. Teachers, police, essential workers like grocery store employees and farm workers will be able to get their vaccinations. That's an additional 500,000 people in San Diego who can now get ready for their shots. But will there be enough vaccine available for them in the next several weeks? That's a question county officials say they can't answer. Joining me is Dr. Christian Ramers, Chief of Population Health at the Family Health Centers of San Diego. Dr. Ramers is also on the county's Clinical Vaccine Advisory Panel. Dr. Ramers, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Maureen. Now, does this mean all teachers, all police employees, et cetera, will be eligible to be vaccinated come Saturday? Starting on Saturday, yes. And in fact, it means more than just all teachers, but really all people that work at schools and then all people who are emergency services that are non-medical, which principally refers to uh, law enforcement. And then with food and agriculture, it's really from the farm to the table, really, uh, those that pick the food, those that process food, and those that serve food as well. So a really comprehensive list. But teachers are not being encouraged to make their own vaccination appointments. Can you tell us how that will work instead? Yeah, so the county has um, struck a deal with the County Office of Education. The County Public Health has struck a deal with the County Office of Education to sort of allow them to manage their own uh, vaccine appointments. That's how I understand it. And this has to do with the way that they're reserving uh, a certain percentage of vaccines to to channel them directly to teachers. Um, So as I heard the announcement yesterday, uh, the appointments are being encouraged to be made through that system. Now, the county may um, may prefer not to vaccinate at their sites, but I, I just want people to know that um, there should be multiple ways to get a vaccine. Um, and if you go to your own private doctor's office, because we're through these criteria, I don't think that they'll turn teachers away. What about police? Will they be contacted for vaccinations as well? So my understanding is that the Scripps Health System is taking the lead on law enforcement, and so uh, they should be expected to be contacted individually uh, for their appointments. And I read that county firefighters will be vaccinating farm workers. Is that right? That's right. So when we think about populations that may be harder to reach, that really can't take a day off work to come in and stand in line and get a vaccine, we have to think of more innovative ways to reach them. And so uh, the firefighters, Cal Fire, will be out there, uh, I think, actually in the farms and in the locations where these individuals work to vaccinate them. But remember, like I said, that that third category includes not just the farm workers, but Uh, grocery store workers, people that work in food processing and meat packing, and then all the way to the servers. 
And will those essential workers make their own appointments like at Petco Park or some other vaccination site? Yes, exactly. So everybody else can use any of the other channels available to be vaccinated, whether they're at your own private health care provider, an FQHC or a federally qualified health center like family health centers or at the superstations. Yes. And what about, doctor, the concerns over vaccine supply? Do we know how much we're getting? We have hoped that to have a better prediction because it is very hard to plan how many appointments to have when you don't know exactly how much is coming. And I have to say it's gotten a little bit better as a vaccine provider, uh, getting more supply, certainly, but we're still not where we want to be. Uh, it is encouraging that we're seeing more and more numbers come in. And then, for example, there's a federal program that is going to ship vaccines directly to community health centers. We haven't seen a dose arrive yet, but we're encouraged by the fact that those will be coming again soon. Now, good news this week is that Johnson & Johnson's one-shot vaccine is close to approval. How is that expected to change vaccine availability? Well, I think it can only improve the availability. Uh, I've heard that they have about 4 million doses that will be ready to ship as soon as authorization occurs, which based on the data that I've seen, I see no reason that the FDA will not approve this vaccine. And then the CDC on Saturday will weigh in. Uh, and the company has said as soon as Monday, they would be able to ship. So 4 million doses right away. And they've said they're going to ramp up to 20 million, I think, over the next several weeks. So it's only going to help supply. Now, aside from the fact that this Johnson & Johnson vaccine only requires one dose, what other key characteristics sets it apart from vaccines that are currently available? Sure. Well, it is um, easier to deal with. It, it can actually be in a regular refrigerator for, I think, up to three months. So much easier to transport and move around. The single shot is key because you just need one moment in someone's life to get the vaccine into them. And then I want to emphasize you know, the headline sort of shows that the effectiveness may be a little bit lower than Moderna or Pfizer, but it's really not a fair comparison. This Johnson & Johnson vaccine was tested at a different time in the pandemic when there were more of these circulating variants. And the deeper you get into this 60-page document that the FDA is going to review on Friday, actually the better that this vaccine looks. The effectiveness was 85% at preventing severe disease, 100% at preventing hospitalization and death. And then there was even some information about asymptomatic transmission that was encouraging. Do you see a time coming when people will be able to choose which COVID vaccine they get? I really don't in the short term. And, and my advice to anybody is get the one that, that you can as soon as you can, because all three of these vaccines are, are very, very good at preventing the most meaningful outcome, which is going into the hospital or dying. Um, we just don't have enough supply for people to be choosy. And honestly, for other vaccines like the annual flu vaccine, we don't really have choice that's involved because we all believe that they are at least equally protective. And doctor, what steps are being put in place to ensure that there is an equitable distribution of vaccines based on need in the hardest hit areas of San Diego County? Yeah, this has been something the county has, has been paying attention to for, for more than six months. And so we're doing many, many things in many different ways. Uh, but this is, a, this is a problem that isn't easy to just flip a switch and change. These are decades of conditions that have led to the equity problems. So the county has a, a program that is reserving spots for people from specific uh, census tracts. When they roll out to teachers, they are prioritizing the lowest quartile based on a health equity index, schools in the lowest quartile. And then those in community clinics and federally qualified health centers are really targeting our neighborhoods that we know have been the hardest hit uh, from COVID-19. And what does the lowest quartile mean? 
Sure. There's a there's something called the Healthy Places Index, which is an index of I think 20 or so socioeconomic factors, educational factors that the state uses to determine what the social determinants of health are, uh, things that influence life expectancy and other illnesses and have certainly been predictive of where COVID-19 has been the most widespread. The state uses this to to give us what's called a um, uh, uh, health equity index score, which is part of the blueprint that puts us in purple and red and orange tiers. And the lowest quartile means the lowest 25% of those neighborhoods uh, that can be specifically um, prioritized for vaccine. Okay, then. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Christian Ramers. He is a member of the county's Clinical Vaccine Advisory Panel and Chief of Population Health at the Family Health Centers of San Diego. Thanks so much for your information. Thank you so much for having me. San Diego Unified students could be back in the classroom by April. The district announced plans to reopen schools for hybrid learning at all grade levels on April 12th, as long as the county is out of the purple tier and school staff can get access to both COVID vaccine doses. The agreement comes after months of negotiations between San Diego Unified and the Teachers Union. Kyle Weinberg is vice president of the San Diego Education Association and was a leader in the bargaining unit for this back-to-school agreement. Kyle, welcome. Thank you, Jade. Start by telling us about the negotiations for this agreement. How long did they actually take and what was at issue? So we have been in negotiations with the district since the pandemic began on providing a safe education for students within our county. And as the negotiations statewide on Senate Bill 86 took effect, we started ramping up our negotiations with the district on making sure that we have all the criteria in place to be able to provide a plan for families so that they can plan for the safe return to campuses. And we were able to agree to our criteria on on Monday uh, for uh, that that plan. And tell me more about that criteria. What are the conditions for reopening San Diego Unified Schools the week of April 12th? And, and you know, what, what has to happen? So there's three criteria that need to be in place for a safe reopening of campuses. One, all school employees need to have the opportunity to be fully vaccinated. The um, site mitigations must be in place, such as proper ventilation, social distancing and required use of masks by all on campus. And also our community case rates need to be able to allow the county to return to the red tier for the first time since the fall in order to be able to open the campuses for in-person learning for all students by April 12th. And, you know, is there time to do all this? That is up in the air. We need to be able to have that opportunity for the vaccinations and we have assurances from the county that those will be, um, the supply will be there for those vaccines. We also need to all do our part to make the collective, continue to make those collective sacrifices um, with social distancing so that we can get our community case rates down uh, below seven per 100,000 as we know we need to get into the red tier. What were the San Diego Education Association's main concerns going into the bargaining session? Um, I assume safety was one. Safety is principal. Um, from the start of the pandemic, educators and the district's leadership have been on the same page that safety and science must be the driving factors when we decide 
how we want to expand our in-person learning, in learning activities. And we can't lose sight of the fact that many of our students' families are being severely impacted by this deadly pandemic and won't feel comfortable returning to school just yet, especially in our 92113 and 92114 San Diego Unified zip codes, um, Logan, South San Diego, Southeast San Diego, that have consistently had uh, positive COVID case rates, uh, three times the rate of the rest of the county. Hmm. And, you know, that brings me to the students. Uh, you know, which students do you think have suffered the most by not being able to attend in person? You know, the inability to learn in person has impacted everyone, but particularly our English language learners, our foster and homeless youth, our students with disabilities. And we have been working with the district since the fall on expanding learning opportunities for those students even before we have a full reopening so that we can have learning labs and appointment-based opportunities for those students to come onto campuses up to five days a week so that we can meet their needs because we know that uh, remote learning is not the best option for most students. Mm. And, and tell me more, how will the district be able to make up for these learning losses? So we have received learning loss funds from the state and from the federal government as part of the stimulus and uh, disaster relief packages. Those funds are being used to pay for visiting teachers to supervise online learning on campuses so that um, staff that cannot come in before they are fully vaccinated so that they can continue to teach from home while the students have access to stable internet on campuses and those funds can also be used for tutoring hours. Right. And hybrid learning uh, has been mentioned a lot. Uh, can you explain what that looks like for San Diego Unified students? Those discussions are in the very early stages on what hybrid learning will look like. We'll be returning to the bargaining table tomorrow to discuss what the daily schedule will look like. We know that um, in Chula Vista Elementary School District, they recently surveyed parents and the parents in working class neighborhoods that have been hardest hit by the virus um, uh, have said that they will prefer that their students continue to learn by home for, by a two to one margin. And so we need to keep those families and those students in mind and make sure that any hybrid option that we return to when it is safe to do so is not going to negatively impact the students and the online learning program that has been in place since the beginning of the pandemic. What kind of resources would it take for schools to fully reopen uh, as they were pre-pandemic? Well, most important is that we reach herd immunity. Uh, we need to bring the rate of the virus down to the level where we can actually do contact tracing and if we are able to do that, then we're expecting that the state will also relax the guidelines on social distancing, which currently require that um, students and teachers need to be six feet apart at all times and to reduce the number of people that are in a room at any one time. What are the union's main concerns in the upcoming negotiations? We're going to make sure that the daily schedule for students is uh, student-centered and is able to meet the needs of our diverse learners. Uh, we need to make sure that the safety mitigations in place are robust. We need to make sure that there's a process for educators 
who have, are at high risk, and we need to make sure that we have stability for for everyone. Um, we do not want to have a roller coaster situation going forward where we are opening and closing schools. I've been speaking with Kyle Weinberg, Vice President of the San Diego Education Association. Kyle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. In the past decade, San Diego Unified School District has made significant progress toward reducing the long-standing inequities its black students have faced. But there's room for growth. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong spoke with students, families, and experts about the black student experience at San Diego Unified and what needs to change when students return to a post-pandemic classroom. Um, I grew up here in southeast San Diego for a majority of my life. Makfera Abdullahi is the daughter of Ethiopian immigrants who came to the United States as refugees during the Somali Civil War. Abdullahi says growing up, her parents had high expectations for her, but she quickly realized that her teachers didn't have the same expectations. So that's when I started to realize, like, I know they won't see me the same, so I needed to start doing better in school and really take it serious. And if I didn't, they'd probably just see me as, you know, that other Black student who doesn't care about school, doesn't want to listen, and, you know, just to reinforce those stereotypes. She said her middle school experience was especially discouraging. She and her Black peers felt isolated and constantly monitored. But she said she toughened up when she got to Morse High School. So I tried I tried my hardest, talked to my counselors, you know, put me in those AP classes. I don't care if you won't let me, I'm going to keep trying. So that's when I really started getting into school. But the experience was definitely not easy. Today, she's in her first year at UC San Diego, majoring in political science. Abdullahi's path was difficult, but she's part of a positive trend at San Diego Unified. Pedro Noguera, the dean of the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California, led a 2019 study of the district that found it had increased both graduation and college readiness rates for black students. I'd say that's a really powerful uh, factor because that is bearing on college eligibility rates. So you've seen that the, the, the number of black students who are eligible for admission to Cal State and the University of California go up. And that is, I think, not an insignificant um, data point. While graduation and college readiness rates have increased during outgoing Superintendent Cindy Martin's tenure, results for school discipline have been mixed. The suspension rates for black students dropped from 10.1% in 2013-2014, Martin's first year, to 8.6% in 2018-2019. But black students are still more than three times as likely to be suspended than their white peers, according to the most recent data. Luana Richmond, a former school board candidate from Southeast San Diego, said it's a sign that black students are still seen as outsiders at schools. It's when you think of a child as your neighbor, your community member, your family member, they could be your child. 
um, the way that you see them is is different than if you see them as like those kids. But as the district begins to bring students back to campuses, both Richmond and Nogueira see an opportunity to rebuild trust between educators and students from all marginalized backgrounds. Nogueira said overemphasizing academics and making up for what's been referred to as learning loss is not the path to an equitable post-pandemic public school system. I would prioritize relationships. I would prioritize bringing some joy to learning the arts, music, so that kids want to be in school. And then I would really focus on getting kids engaged as learners before we focus narrowly on assessment. San Diego Unified has already taken steps in that direction. Shortly following this summer's protests for racial justice, the district revised its grading policy to prioritize mastery of material over test scores. The district also revised its discipline policy for middle school and invested in training for its police department. Abdullahi, the UC San Diego student, says she's hoping her younger siblings might get to experience a more inclusive curriculum and school environment. There's still so much history that needs to be covered and so much history that Black high school students deserve to learn about their own people. And within APUS history, you know, they just brush over, you know, the major topics, Jim Crow, slavery, you know. So um, there's so there's so much more work that needs to be done, but it's it's a step in the right direction for now. Joining me is KPBS education reporter Joe Hung. And Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me. Tell us more about how the racial justice marches last spring and summer brought changes to San Diego Unified policies. Yeah, so following the killing of George Floyd last summer, um, local students were part of the protests and they were calling for using the funding for school police to invest in more mental health services and Part of their campaign was also hire more diverse staff um, and teachers, especially. Now, did educators realize that perhaps the old policies had racist overtones? Yeah, I think so. I think the uh, district officials definitely acknowledged that the, the students uh, had very valid grievances. And um, the district, in large part, recognized the r- racial inequities at, at the schools. And the, the school board has expressed the commitment to reforming the police. They won't be abolishing or, quote-unquote, defunding the department, but they are investing in uh, in training police officers so that they have sort of less of a, a, a threatening presence on, on campus, especially for black students and, and students of color. And uh, the district has also revised its grading policies. They're focusing more on, uh, on mastery of material, meaning that students will get more opportunities to, to retake tests, take more time with uh, assignments, and uh, just more flexibility overall to accommodate for certain students who might be going through things at home, for instance. So according to the USC educator you spoke with, going back to school this spring or next fall should not be all about making up for lost academic time? Yes. So uh, the expert cautioned against sort of an overemphasis on academics because that can ultimately just pressure students, right? And he said the focus should be on on rebuilding the in-person relationships and uh, making students feel comfortable in the classroom setting again. But aren't there major concerns about the amount of learning that's been lost during the pandemic? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, I, and I don't think uh, Pedro Nogueira, the, the expert, would, would disagree with that. But I think uh, his argument is that educators need to build sort of the social and emotional foundation uh, so that the learning can happen again, right? And students could be coming in with 
all sorts of behaviors and even traumas that they've sort of picked up during a year of, of the pandemic and distance learning. And, and black students and students of color and other sort of historically marginalized groups will probably be more likely to need these sort of uh, extra non-academic supports. Is the district getting any pushback for the plan to de-emphasize test scores? Isn't that what a lot of colleges look at for admission? Yeah, I think uh, when the board sort of approved this uh, new grading policy, I think there were a few vocal opponents who who made the argument that a lenient grading policy isn't doing any favors for students. But, you know, when we sort of look ahead in the academic pipeline to, to college admissions, right, I think it's important to note that the University of California, um, Cal State universities, and a, a lot of highly selective universities like the University of Chicago are shifting away from uh, requiring standardized testing. The people you spoke with at San Diego Unified emphasized the reduction in the number of black student suspensions over the past years. But the co-author of a recent discipline disparity report says there has been virtually no improvement over that time. So why the disagreement? Yeah, so it really depends on what years you're looking at. So a district spokesperson that I spoke with emphasized that during um, Superintendent Cindy Martin's tenure, suspension rates for uh, black students um, declined in, in her first sort of two years from 9% to 7.8%. But since then, um, the suspension rates for, for black students has gone back up to 8.6% in 2018, 2019. So there has been uh, early successes for, for reducing the disparity, but um, a lot of fluctuation in the years following. The local NAACP is critical of Cindy Martin, uh, of course, who's now waiting for confirmation as Deputy U.S. Secretary of Education. The group says that Martin has not kept her equity promises because of the suspension rate. Have any other metrics improved for black students under her watch? Yeah, absolutely. So graduation rates for black students has gone up significantly uh, since Martin became superintendent. Um, but on top of that, more black students are graduating college ready. And, and what that means is they're taking the classes and they're passing the classes that make them eligible to enroll at a Cal State or um, University of California campus. And the NAACP is also calling for more black teachers in San Diego schools. What do we know about the impact that that can have on black students? Yeah, to, so to throw out some more numbers, um, so at San Diego Unified, about 8% of students are black, while uh, 4% of teachers are, are black, right? And um, it's pretty well known at this point in the education field that if a student has a teacher who looks like them and can relate to their own experiences, whether they be racial or socioeconomic or whatever, um, those students are m more likely to succeed and feel supported. And in my story, uh, a former school board candidate, uh, Lawana Richmond, made a key point in the story that a lot of times black students feel uh, like they're seen as outsiders. And when you have teachers who can relate to students, the less likely the teachers are to to see those kids as as other. And they start to see them more as, you know, our students and a part of our community. And this could be the key to decreasing things like suspension rates. Okay, then I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. And Joe, thank you. Thank you, Marie. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, 
Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego's Common Ground Theater has a mission to produce classics and new works by and about people of African descent. This weekend, it showcases Day of Absence by Douglas Turner Ward, who died last Saturday. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with actor Leon Alexander Matthews about the virtual production. Leon, you are part of a production of Day of Absence. Uh, talk a little bit about what this play by Douglas Turner Ward is about. Uh, this play is a, about a small town in, deep, in, in the Deep South. And one day the town uh, wakes up, the, the whites wake up, and all the Black folks have gone away for 24 hours. And to their despair, they don't know what to do. And so it, it's, uh, we go through 24 hours of the whole town talking about where the white folk or where the black folks have gone and why they've gone. They don't know where they've gone. Uh, what are we going to do if they're not here? How are we going to live? How are we going to do our day to day without them? So that's basically what the uh, play is about. And then also you get a, a, a insight on what this town thought about the, about the Negroes in the town. And this play, in terms of performance, involves a version of whiteface. And what does that entail for the performance? It's uh, uh, actually a reversal of the minstrels that happened back uh, when it started in the beginning of the 19th century, where you had the white males uh, dressing in blackface or charcoal face and doing comedy skits, buffoonery skits, if you will, about about African-Americans, about Blacks in the, in the towns or in the Blacks growing up back then. And so this play is a reversal of that where we're all in white space and we're portraying the our white counterparts. And is this something that was actually written into the text of the play or is this a choice by the company? Uh, no, this was actually written into the text of the play. This is uh, in its original form. Uh, we haven't changed it. Uh, it was written uh, back in 1965. And um, so everything that you will see is exactly how it was written. Adding a note of sadness to this particular production is the fact that the playwright just recently passed away. And how does it feel to be or to have this being performed at this particular moment then? You know, it's like you said, it's with sadness. But, you know, it's a, it's a great honor to be able to perform a play like this and, and actually at a time that we're experiencing in America. Because this is, even though this was written back in uh, 1965, it is so relevant to what is going on in 2021. And you know, by then we thought you know, racism and, and just the way that America thinks and the way that America processes things, we thought by now it should be men and women of any color or race or background or religion should be on equal ground, but they're not. And how was this performance done? Is this something that was filmed specifically to go online or was this something that was a performance that had been filmed uh, a while ago? 
Originally, of course, this was done on stage pre-COVID. And so when the play came across the table and we thought about this play, it's like, wow, you know, hopefully the restrictions will have uh, gone away. We can get back to the theater. But of course, the restrictions have not gone back to normal. Nothing is normal yet. So Yolanda put her head together and said, you know what, we can do this online. We can do this via Zoom. So our rehearsals, all of our rehearsals were on Zoom, all of our reads were on Zoom. So none of the actors have actually been acting together, really. And uh, so we were able to to do that through the technology. And so um, I think we'll have a pretty good production. Tell people a little bit about this theater company, Common Ground. It's been here in San Diego for quite a while, but um, some people may not be familiar with it. So give us a little background. Yeah, so Common Ground has been around for over 50 years, and it's it's stayed in the community. And what they do is uh, not only do they uh, get actors from this community, but they also get actors from other communities. And regardless of your background, um, your experience, they uh, audition you and give you a chance to to perform. Uh, so like myself, when, of course, when I first started, I didn't have any uh, acting experience. I first started off as a musician and then a role came about called uh, Before It Goes Home, Before It Comes Home. I was able to act as a sax player and and actually got the lead role, surprisingly enough. And so, but they groom you and, uh, and some of the actors have gone on to be uh, major performers. And if it's not too much of an imposition, could I ask you to read a couple lines from the play in your character? This part is where um, John and Mary actually, they've woken up, they, they, uh, John's already gone to, to work and he's actually gone through the neighborhood and they have a maid and her name is Lula and they can't find Lula. So let me just give a little bit of this. Walked up to the shack, knocked on the door, didn't get no answer, hollered, Lula, Lula, not a thing. Went around the side, peeked in the window, nobody stirred. Next door, nobody there. Crossed over the side of the street, banged on five, six other doors. Not a colored person could be found. Not a man, neither woman or child. Not even a black dog could be seen, smelled or heard for blocks around. They're gone, Mary. They're gone. All right, I want to I want to thank you very much for talking about this production. Well, thank you very much. That was Beth Accomando speaking with actor Leon Alexander Matthews about Day of Absence. The play is being performed online tomorrow through Sunday. Information is available at commongroundtheater.com. We continue our Black Heritage Month salute to San Diego's great Black music artists. Today, jazz soloist Rebecca Jade. She's the winner of multiple San Diego Music Awards and performs in her own band, Rebecca Jade and the Cold Fact, and is also a backup singer with Sheila E. We asked her to reflect on her influences, her childhood with a jazz singer for a mother, the songs that made her fall in love with music, and the artists that shaped her style. She starts with how the pandemic has affected her. For me personally, it was like cancellation after cancellation after cancellation of dates right at the beginning, you know? So it's a bit of like, oh boy, okay, what am I gonna do? What do we do? So there was a sense of that kind of, um, oh no, you know, <laughs> a little bit. But then it was like, okay, so, so now what? 
this is a reality. What can I do? And that's so that's really where things kind of shifted mentally. I know sometimes it's hard to recognize your power when all the world seems to be bringing you down. And I think some of it reflected also in song. A lot of the songs I try I write are also very encouraging. I try to write songs that are like uplifting or, you know, and so some of the songs that came out of this pandemic has reflected that as well. So it's a matter of, you know, we could all be what was me or we can be like, okay, this is our reality. What can we do about it? My mom's a jazz singer, shout out to my beautiful mom. And um, growing up, she helped expose me to a lot of different musical styles. Billie Holiday was, was one of the icons, you know. Good morning, honey, you old gloomy say. Good morning, honey, thought we said goodbye last night. Her voice, there was something just so haunting. And so I, I can't even explain what it is. I couldn't even tell you technically, but there was something about her voice when I was when I was first hearing her that just drew me to her. Wish I forget you, but you're here to stay. It seems I met you when my love went away. Now every day I start by saying to you. She lived a, a life, you know, there was, there was such sorrow and sadness and yet power and vulnerability and there's so many layers that I think I hear when I hear her, her voice and it just draws me to her. And so it kind of reflects in my writing. I don't know why, but I just, I always tend to write love songs or, yeah, I try to write songs that are encouraging and empowering as well. But I also tend to, to have a lot of like love songs or heartbreak songs. And I think that being a fan of Billie Holiday almost gave me the permission to be comfortable to do that, you know? Yeah, she was one of the first voices that, that just really stuck into my, my ear, my soul, my, my heart. Good morning, Whitney Houston is definitely a big influence for me. I tried to sing like her. I was trying to learn her runs. And she just had this pure voice that it was undeniable. All at once, I finally took a moment and Finally hit me all at once. So 
all at once was just one of those songs that I just loved the melody and I just loved the way she sang. I love the way she sang everything. I just remember that being one of the, the songs that was not really, you know, everybody knew I want to dance with somebody and greatest love of all. But I think this one was just one of those that was not as popular, but was such a great song. When she passed, I remember going, you know, like a lot of people do, oh, I want to reminisce on, and I was like, gosh, she had so many amazing songs, and I knew so many of them, and she just really, really impacted me to be that voice to try to, to try to be like, I, I did try to sing like her, and she, that's how, that's how much she meant to me. Wishing you come back to me, and that's all. Celia Cruz is one of, gosh, she, she was just, she kind of is more of a representation of the style of music that my, my mom and I listened to a lot. Uh, I was partly raised in Puerto Rico. Like I said, my mom was a, a jazz singer. She was a jazz singer there in Puerto Rico. So Latin music that Puerto Rican Cuban was just flowing and everywhere. It was part of, it was part of my upbringing. When we moved to um, California, it was just one of those, like, we always still played that music a lot. When it was time to do something, to make dinner, to get ready for something, we were always playing Celia Cruz and Tito Puentes, and it was part of the catalog of my upbringing. <laughs> five movies is Amadeus you know that's the soundtrack is is all <laughs> is Mozart's Requiem and there's such a contrast you know you hear this wide array of instrumentation that is just powerful and I you know and I, I can hear the melodies in my head and you just for me physically like my head moves when it's like these like low and big sounds <laughs> comes in and and then or there's a lead vocalist that that is takes this you know this part and it's just there's something that is just so moving and it's incredible to see it and feel it I just I just love it My mom really helped me a lot with vocal harmonies. Oftentimes it would be just the two of us singing, you know. He's talk. As I got a little older, she started to share with me bands like Manhattan Transfer, where vocals are just 
almost the instrumentation. You know, they, they are. They are the, the main instrument. Anytime we would go on car rides or if I'd go on car rides with my dad, I remember we drove one time, I think, to Texas and we were listening to Manhattan Transfer and just, it's just, uh, again, a different style that, like classical, where, you know, you just have this wide range of instrumentation. I love how Manhattan Transfer, like how they take vocal and put a wide range within that scope, within that style, you know? I, I, I'm so blown away by it, and uh, I love listening to vocal acrobatics like Manhattan Transfer. truly believe that the Mozarts and the Take Six and the and the Manhattan Transfer, that all reflects still into the shows that I do, either with Sheila E. or my own stuff, Cold Fact, and all, it all relates uh, 100%. So I encourage people to keep at it if there's any doubts within yourself of, you know, oh, I don't know how this is going to help or contribute. I truly believe it all contributes in some form or fashion. So to stick with it and uh, at some point it manifests itself to reveal that, that it, was, uh, it was part of your evolution. That was San Diego musician Rebecca Jade. You can find links to all the songs that influenced her as well as her own music on our website at kpbs.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.